heard a lot about this uh, show, the ex-candidates. This has been a pretty thorough interview. These institutions which we've been told to respect and trust are actually completely untrustworthy. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. So you can pay my electricity bill, you think, that was spared. We're teaching them about what it means to be a pansexual instead of teaching them how to do your taxes. It's no for me. I say no to the boys. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Ex-Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, joined by Adam Zara. How are you tonight, Adam? I'm pretty good, thanks, Stephen. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Adam. That's very good. So um, welcome to our listeners and viewers. And just want to say, um, tune in to Rumble, follow us on Spotify and all those places. Um, you know, it's good to work the hours away by listening to Stephen and I talk to our very special guests. Yeah, we have a lot of good guests on there, so please, and also comment as well. We'd like to hear your comments, uh, and that's a big reason why we're doing tonight's episode because we had uh, one of our Instagram followers, Gary, who asked us to please do something uh, in regards to the recent Ben Robert Smith case. Uh, Adam and I are not military men, so we're not not experts about this sort of thing, but we thought we'd reach out to one of our experts, former Lieutenant Colonel of the Australian Defence Forces, Alastair Pope. We've had him on a previous episode. We actually had him on two previous episodes. It was a, a two-parter, episode 34, in which we discussed his background and, and some of Australia's military capabilities. So if you want to go back and hear more about Alastair, go listen to that episode. And also episode 35, which we discussed on, uh, we discussed what would happen if Australia was invaded and whether or not we're ready for that or even capable of uh, repelling, uh, you know, an attack from a foreign force. But yeah, tonight we're going to just dive straight into this issue of uh, Ben Robert Smith. First, Alistair, how are you going tonight? Good, good. You're in, you're middle, in the middle of a monsoon at the moment in Vietnam, Yes, right? I am. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so we get guests from everywhere. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, you want me to just uh, tell you a few things, or yeah, well, if you're ready to jump in, just jump yeah. right into it. Well, one of the things I sent you was a list of um, statistics for 14 wars that Australia's been involved in, and it showed, in rough terms, we've had one and a half million people uh, serve in war zones, and not one of them has come up so far until we got to Afghanistan with any war crimes. Now, what are the, cha what are the statistical chances of that, that we had no war crimes committed in the Maori Wars, the Sudan, the Boxer Rebellion? Of course, Brick and Morant is the famous one which is brought up all the time. I actually spoiled a very good friendship of mine when I did not support the uh, exoneration of Brick and Morant. He was, in fact, a war criminal. But uh, he was actually serving with the Bushveld Carabineers, which um, was actually a British unit, an irregular unit. And he was tried by a British court and executed by a British court for killing uh, nine prisoners, one of whom was a minister who had, he had him dig his own grave and shot him in the head. So one day didn't ask him to fill the grave in after him. <laughs> anyway, um, so he's the only, the only one we've ever had convicted of a war crime. 
And you go right through the whole lot and suddenly you come up with Afghanistan where we're told there are 39 war criminals or 39 crimes and maybe up to 54 people have been illegally killed in, um, by uh, after being taken prisoner. Now, statistically, we've either had the most honorable army that's ever existed in history or there's a lot more war crimes to be uh, found and dealt with. Fortunately, we've got Major General Brerin, a lawyer, uh, on the case. And um, he actually has just given a lecture on the 4th of June in Sydney. I maybe should have alerted you to it and you could have gone along. It's a free lecture at the uh, New South Wales Historical Society. And in it, he pointed out that um, he uh, had been going through the history, and of course he mentioned Breaker Morant, and then he said um, there are probably lots of war crimes in World War II that were never dealt with. There is one that was dealt with, and that was the... Um, the uh, Rabaul looting that went on, that was a crime, but it, it did involve some killing of locals, but um, no one was ever convicted of that. There was one in uh, World War One where a New Zealand soldier was murdered by uh, an Arab who was actually robbing the place, and the New Zealanders took offence to this and went into the local village and killed 40 people. And mm. that was investigated, and the investigation went on for years, and then, yeah, it just died. So we've had war crimes that we know about, and you can get up to And in World War II, this, and by the way, Albert Jacker, let me go back to him, because he's one of my heroes, actually, and he's, he wrote a biography. And in it, there's one point there where he admits that he found, um, he, he attacked a trench and killed several enemy, and the rest surrendered. So he ended up with five wounded and four non-wounded uh, enemy soldiers, and he only had a couple of soldiers with him. And he realized that the enemy were about to launch a counterattack with about 30 soldiers. Now, he didn't have the resources to guard these nine and also fight off the counterattack by 30. So he killed them. War crime. Mm. Let's, let's strip Albert Jacker, one of our great heroes, a fellow who actually, actually probably earned two or three VCs and was granted one. He, he actually got the first VC in World War I at Gallipoli. So do you um, think that the main issue with this is that our view of war has changed over time? Like no, society's no. view of war? No, not society generally. Society has no idea what war is all about and, and doesn't really care. Um, if you remember the, the film The Odd Angry Shot, there's a very funny scene in it, and I've actually personally experienced this. Um, the SAS guys go for a drink at Bondi Beach. They have a couple of beers. And then they say goodbye to the barman. A year later, they come back from Vietnam and turn up at the same bar again. The guy said, oh, been away, have you? Where have you been? And, I mean, I had exactly the same experience. I, I, I came back and, and people had no idea where I'd been because I wasn't exactly doing anything about it. But, um, or, you know, saying, oh, guess where I've been? Um, and people would say, to you, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. And so it's not a case of the public attitude the war has changed. It certainly is because of the education system and the wokeness that's going on. But in general, they don't care and they don't know. And now what you've got is activists who are raising this quite strongly. And um, if you really want to see, I, I shouldn't even advertise the book, but it's by Chris Masters. And I wrote a review of it. And he actually says in the book, um, there were rumors at parties of 
Afghans being found dead in fields without weapons. I mean, what more evidence do we need? He also yeah. said, um, in one case there, the businessman was um, uh, dragged behind uh, some uh, a pile of wood and shot. And then Brown, in his report, said uh, they didn't actually see this. They heard this third party. And that became evidence. Crumpets, or whatever he called I can't even pronounce her name. The crumpet from Monash, from Monash University actually said in her book, that the SAS used to surround villages. They had no capability of doing that. It's called search and, search and destroy. And we used to do that in Vietnam using whole companies or even battalions. They used to surround villages. And then after the, the squitters, the runners, the people who tried to run away had been dealt with, meaning we shot them. The men would be rounded up, taken to a, a house. And three days later, they'd be found dead with a throat slit. So... Brown actually repeats this in his report as fact, but he couldn't name a village. Mm. So where are all these villages of widows? You'd think the Taliban would be out there, you know, producing these widows and, and line them up in front of the, cam the cameras. So, I mean, there's so much fiction has been written about this that I, and, and to tell you the truth, I don't really care if Ben did in fact shoot people. Think about it this way. <coughs> Robert O'Neill was, confront, was confronted by Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden had a weapon, but was looking a bit frightened. <clears throat> so Robert shot him through the chest and then put a bullet in his head. So what is, is that a war crime? It's called a double tap. But is that a war crime? You've just wounded a guy, and now you're going to kill the wounded deliberately when he can't fight back. And it was quite uh, popular, in particularly in World War II, if you passed the Japanese... It was either wounded or thought you or you may have thought he was dead you put another bullet in him to make sure he was because some of them suddenly came alive and threw grenades and so on so it became but, but, technique so that's, to kill. that's a standard practice though that they would be trained to do that wouldn't they yes yeah so that's that's what i agree because even when <laughs> I, I know i know somebody who was like a you know security guard and like armored security guard and when they do their training um they're always taught to shoot twice. Like you always double, like what you said, double tap. It's always a bang, bang to make sure that you, you basically stop your opponent. Yeah. So, yeah. Also, sorry, Alice, I've got a quick question just regarding that story. You're telling us about the fellow who had the nine hostages and had to shoot them because he couldn't defend himself against the oncoming, um, yeah. you know, guys onslaught. Um, yeah. Is, is it a, is it a war crime that he killed those? Is because I mean they were his hostages, and I'm not saying I'm not condoning any of this. I'm just asking for clarification. Um, yes. Must he die? Like if he can if he can kill his hostages to survive against a an onslaught, is that is that a crime? Is that is that not yes. you're not meant to do that? Yes. So you're meant to die yeah, with nine, nine unarmed people in yeah. front of them, four of whom were wounded, and he killed a lot. So he could then defend himself. Now, there's a, um, a film in a book called Lone Survivor where a five-man SEAL patrol is sent to go to this village and kill a local Taliban there. They get spotted along the way by a goat herd. They capture him. And they have a discussion, and the Lone Survivor actually has got this in the book, and they say, 
well, should we kill him or do we let him go? So they let him go. The kid runs down the hill and soon they're being pursued by 120 Taliban armed to the teeth. They call in a helicopter to come and pick them up. So the helicopter is a Chinook which arrives with 18 SEALs on board or comes to arrive with 18 SEALs on board and uh, the two crew, the three crew. So it's 21 people on board. The Taliban managed to shoot it down and kill everyone on board. 23 dead for the life of one goat herd. So these guys continue running and they're eventually caught up with and four of them are killed, including one guy who is reported by the lone survivors, it's probably not true, he just makes it up, that um, he said, if I kill this guy, I will probably spend the rest of my life in Leavenworth for having killed an unarmed civilian. So and he points out in the book that um, his first child was born after he was dead. Mm. and one guy managed to survive. Now, there are many, many cases of that. If you read the Andy McNabb book, um, Bravo 2-0, um, which was a badly organized British SAS patrol uh, in which uh, he was only one guy gets away, uh, three are captured and the others are all killed. And it's because they were spotted by both a bulldozer driver and a goat herd. And they discuss, should we kill him or flee? So they flee. But now they've got the Iraqi army after them, and it ended up costing them five dead, four captured, and one got away. So where do you draw the line in these things? Now, there was one case there where Ben Robert Smith and his friend Russell, who was killed, um, came across three guys who spotted them. And the guys turned to run away, and they actually shot them. And one guy was carrying a flare, which went off. Because when they hit him, the flare went off. So he was obviously part of the enemy, but they didn't know that when they shot him. And the other guy they found was carrying a radio and was about to make a call saying, hey, they're here, come and get them. So, but that was technically a war crime because when they fired those shots, it's like, uh, you know, if the police stop you, they've got to have a reason to stop you. Yeah. They didn't have a reason to actually do what they did except personal survival. That was a war crime. So they already have one war crime there. But if we're, if we're going to start labelling all these things war crimes well why can't you extend it to things that happened in world war ii for example i was in germany in september and my wife took me to her uh, the city that she went to uni which was Würzburg, and we we're in this ca- castle a lot of the european cities have got this big castle on the hill yeah. so it's a big tourist area now and i was just reading one of the plaques you know it was a beautiful building and it was saying that the majority of this building has been reconstructed because in the last month of the war, I think it was April 1945, the British Lancasters just came along and levelled the whole city to the ground and firebombed it because the, the English didn't want the Germans to rise up again. They wanted to send a message. And I think in the last uh, interview that we did with you, you spoke about Dresden as well. Yeah, Dresden, 50,000 were killed. It was firebombed. And technically that was a war crime because it was, it was unable to defend itself. You can't go out and shoot and, and drop bombs on people. I, I mean, I, I watch videos about Ukraine, and here's some guys sitting around a campfire not knowing that above them is a drone about to drop a grenade right into the middle of them and kill them all. And, and so they couldn't defend themselves. And by the way, do you know why Australia has no drone, no armed drones? Why do we not have armed drones? I think you, I think you mentioned a, this last yeah, time. A, pre, a previous minister, Labour Party, but that's irrelevant. Um, they're just as bad on the other side. Um, our Labour Minister actually decided they were an unfair weapon because uh, the, the 
guy who was dropping the bombs um, was not at any risk <coughs> because he was simply playing with his little Xbox. And he sees Adam and Stephen there and he goes and drops a bomb on them and then goes home and says, the wife said, what did you do today? Did you get the milk and the bread? Oh, yeah, and I killed two people. Oh, yeah, very good. <coughs> so we decided that was an unfair weapon. There is no unfair weapon. Um, David Hackworth, who was a highly decorated American officer who couldn't stand America anymore and came to live in Australia where he owned a restaurant, and he actually said, if you... Find yourself in a fair fight. You had a bad plan. So, well, and this so, is what, we, <clears throat> you know, like what we know, shock and awe. You know, they just went like launch countless bombs, like from the from the sky. I mean, if you had an airplane and you dropped a bomb, just like the drone, that's unfair because the people don't even know it's coming. If you have yeah, a, if you have a, if you have a, if you have a, a, a warship. You know, you know, out in like in the sea somewhere, not too far away, range rise, and it launches its rockets from there and and it and blows up a city, or blows up yeah. a military installation. War crime? No, no, no. It's not a war crime if you if you tackle something that's actually an enemy, um, say headquarters or communication center or armed unit. They're fair game. Um, but what you can't do is go around shooting civilians, and you can't do what Winston Churchill did, and that's bomb Dresden. That's not allowed. So, in fact, uh, the other one I, I brought up, and, and I sent you the um, flyer for Major General Brereton uh, as uh, his talk, and he, he mentions the ambiguity of the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, which went on for three days, by the way. Uh, the... They were moving somewhere in the region of about uh, 10,000 Japanese soldiers from Rabaul across to, to help defend Ley. We'd broken the codes. We sent in the, the bombers and we sank all four troop ships and we sank four of the defending frigates. And there were now 6,000 survivors, about 6,000 survivors bobbing around in the sea waiting to be picked up. 6,000 of them. The order was then given to go in and machine gun them. Now, these people could not defend themselves. They had no weapons. They were simply trying to survive in the sea, and we killed over 2,700 of them. Now, was that technically a war crime? He, he gets away by saying it was ambiguous whether or not that was a war crime. No, it's not. They were defenseless. You can't go around shooting people who can't fight back, who have yeah. not got the option of surrendering. But now about uh, 2,000 of them eventually were landed in Ley and the rest were picked up and returned back to Rabaul. So we had only about 2,000 out of about 10,000 actually, um, you know, got to the mission and without equipment. So um, that was uh, the battle of the battle. It wasn't a battle. It was a massacre of the Bismarck Sea. By the way, we lost um, 13 airmen. Um, the... The Japanese, apart from the eight ships that they lost, lost about uh, 6,000 men. Um, wow. So now think of any submarine that's bobbing around there that comes across and sinks the Louisitania or any ship which is, belongs to the enemy. Um, then that is technically a war crime, but you don't know that when you fire the uh, torpedo. That's what you do as a submarine commander. You see enemy ships and you sink them. Yeah, and you and, and at the end of the war, we actually executed one 
um, submarine commander, who, by the way, surrendered in Egypt of all places. He was in the Mediterranean at the end of the war, and he was identified as someone who had followed Donuts's orders. And Donuts was jailed for 10 years, but he had given the order, which he said was based on being told by Hitler to do so, that um, rather than let uh, survivors of ships that are sunk um, survive and therefore be picked up and get back into the another ship and come back again, they were to be machine gunned. <clears throat> and this one commander did that, and he was executed at the end of the war. Yet in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, we killed 2,500 in the sea, and um, ambiguous. Yeah, tell me yeah. how. You have now, to be a lawyer to make you understand that's ambiguous. Now, Alistair, you brought up Chris Masters. Now, he was the journalist that was embedded with the Australian forces, and he he started hearing all these allegations of war crimes, and this led to him contacting another journalist, Nick McKenzie. So these were the two journalists that yeah. Ben Robert Smith, uh, you know, ran the defamation right. case against. Yeah. I just want to play a quick clip. Now, this is um, this is Nick McKenzie speaking. This was on, actually on uh, 60 Minutes. I just want to play this for you and then get your reaction. After more than five years of lots of people being traumatised, chewed up, spat out by the whole court process, the amount of lost sleep, anxiety, stress, has it all been worth it? And the answer to that is yes, because Australians deserve to know if Ben Robert Smith is a war criminal. And for the first time, they now know that Ben Robert Smith is a war criminal. Now, apart from the statement of Ben Robert Smith being a war criminal, he's, he's there talking about the anxiety and the loss of sleep and all this trauma that he went through as part of this legal case when he's, when he's calling a, a soldier that's been in war and obviously been in very traumatic situations uh, you know, what, what do you have any comments? I, I just feel the like the audacity of this journalist to go on about how how much anxiety he has from this issue when he hasn't the, been in warfare. No, I don't care about the warfare. The, the self righteousness of these people of thinking that they've got um, a higher morality when they haven't done anything, when they haven't faced anything like that. Now, if they were in that park in France where there was a guy running around stabbing babies and toddlers, would they have charged up there and stopped them by any means? Let's say Probably they're unarmed or they've got a knife themselves. Would they have gone there and actually stopped them? I doubt it. The answer is probably no. He would write about it later. And if somebody had gone up and shot him, look at the case of Brendan Penny in New York where he took on a guy and the guy died. And he was another another uh, Floyd drug addict. Um, but uh, the fact was that he died and now he's being prosecuted with second-degree murder. And yet everyone who witnessed this said the man's a hero. But the world has gone very strange and the freaks are now running the world. And, yeah. and so they can actually set their own rules and, and, and do these sort of things. I mean, I, I feel that Joan of Arc got a bit of a bad call, actually, in her trial. But that's, uh, you know beside the point. It's not beside the point because exactly the same case where she was handed over by her own side um, in return for a, what was supposed to be a peace deal. Anyway, um, in the case... Well, in was, case uh, another, another, another example of these journalists, I, in, in doing preparation for this podcast tonight, I was going through and uh, just 
you know, looking at different stories and different articles and things. And some of them, some of these podcasts that I came across were saying, we can finally call Ben Robert Smith a war criminal. And it was like, hurrah, you know, finally this court case has come down and, and we can really attack this guy. Yet he was over there fighting for this country. And, you know, whether he did crimes wrong or, or not, you know, they're Nine not over Nine tours. Average length of tour, four months in the field. That's three years on the front line. He got a medal of gallantry for defending himself. He was in a sniper position, actually, when they detected him and his partner. And he fought them off. He killed about 20 of them before they decided it was a bad day at the office and, and decided to go away. And he had a bullet through his pack. That's how close he got. Now, Donaldson, another VC, um, was asked on one of the TV shows said, well, how close did you actually get to the enemy? And he said, the guy was holding the barrel of my rifle when I forced it around and shot him. Now, when he got back, a general who was visiting at the time said, couldn't you have asked them to surrender? That's the quality of the generals we now have. They're not combat generals anymore. They don't understand that. Very few of them are. Cosgrove was a combat soldier. So was Jeffries. But the rest of them are just pen pushers. But um, no, I mean, here's Donaldson who's just fought for his life against someone who's there, and he gets um, asked, couldn't you have asked him to surrender? You know? No. Look, I'm absolutely not not a soldier. I've never never done anything like it. But is it, it would be, I would imagine that it would be hard to define between, like in, especially in like guerrilla tactics and warfare and stuff like that. Like, let's face it, like, you know, I guess that in in Iraq and stuff like that, anyone's a threat to a military person at that time. You know what I mean? So I'm not saying to just go around and shoot anyone, but at the end of the day, if you've got bullets whizzing around your head and you'll start shooting people, like is it hard? It would be hard to define who's who is what. Right, well, it is. In fact, if you have a look at this, what's called green and blue killings, and a friend of mine I knew for many years, his son was one of those who was killed. Um, when um, the ANA, the Afghan National Army Sergeant, and McPilla, actually turned around and fired into a tent where they were having uh, lunch and killed three of them and then did a runner. Now, unbelievably, he was captured. He was taken alive. And he was handed over to the ANA, who sentenced him to death. And the Americans then took over and released him in exchange for that traitor Bergdahl. He was one of the trades that were done for Bergdahl. He now, li he now lives in Qatar. Mm. So he killed three Australians. Now, I think the restraint of the SAS when they captured them, capturing them was great restraint. He should have been so riddled. It should be like that uh, fellow from Louisiana who said, uh, why did you shoot the guy 164 times? Because that's all the bullets I had. <laughs> the guy who killed a policeman. And yeah. uh, I think the restraint and actually taking him alive and then watching the justice system release him, where he now lives happily ever after in uh, in uh, Qatar. Well, we have to be a little bit accurate about this because this was a, a civil trial. It was a defamation trial. It wasn't a criminal trial. Now, the difference is... I know is, that. Yeah. So, the, I mean, I'm not... I'm not saying, I'm, I'm just clarifying it for the audience. I'm not saying that you're uh, saying these things, but... In a, in a civil trial, the burden of truth is different. You don't have to prove it as much as you would in a, in a criminal trial. So 
what's the chance that maybe in a if it does go to a criminal trial trial hypothetically uh potentially maybe the evidence isn't there to to prove that uh ben robert smith is a war criminal or is it is it pretty clear no in fact it's not clear um in what when Basanko actually said on the probabilities, on the balance, he was taking one person's word or several people's word against several other people's word and said, well, on the balance, I think he did it. Now, that will never get through in a criminal trial. And I noticed actually there's a little blog came up here that said um, two of the war crimes charges against Ben Roberts have been dropped. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen that verified anywhere else, but um, he was yeah, accused well, they of... Yeah, they, 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 said, they said four out of six murders were found to be substantially true, which means that... Substantially true basically means that the, the court overlooks minor inaccuracies and focuses on the meaning being con conveyed, so... Yeah, so two have been dropped already. I yeah. think the chance of it actually turning out to be to convict him is fairly slim and if it isn't let me give you what's going to happen um we've already just about destroyed the morale of the army the recruiting has absolutely tanked the um they can barely run courses and the attrition rate of people leaving the army is now greater than those entering and yet if you remember just before the last election saying morrison oh i love scummel uh, Morrison actually said that he was going to increase the army to 40,000, but then he, he quietly whispered that he was going to do it by raising the numbers in the army by an extra 1,000 a year. So that means if in May last year we had 26,000 soldiers, we should have 27,000 now and going up for 28 very soon. We're going backwards. And the people we're losing are the NCO ranks. And um, they, they are the, they're the backbone of any army. And nobody, what, nobody now wants to go to the combat arms. Why would you? So You're what, not going to be what, a hero. So for the lay people like myself, what is an NCO? Oh, national um, uh, non-commissioned officer, sergeants and corporals. Okay, so they they don't actually go to the front line. Oh yeah, they do. They're the oh, ones okay. that are in the front line. Okay, cool. All right, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I'm. I'm not a military person, so I have. No, 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 that's that's okay. why I ask those questions. It's it's the lowest command rank, and they're the people who actually do the fighting. Mm -hmm. There was a, a fellow I knew very well. He actually was killed in an air crash. His name was Tony Hammett. And in a book, it's written about he decided they were facing a, an enemy bunker system in Vietnam. <clears throat> so he actually called to his soldiers and said, Let's do a bayonet charge. And I won't repeat what the soldiers said back to him, but it wasn't very complimentary. But they did. They did, in fact, do the last known bayonet charge <coughs> by the Australian army. And uh, they succeeded. <coughs> and um, that was Tony. He was a bit of an eccentric. <coughs> he just now, wanted to see what it was like. Now, I want to bring up one of these, uh, an article that you wrote in, in Quadrant, because you, you write in a lot of different uh publications here in australia and around the world uh but this one in particular you're talking about the yamashita standard yes uh, now all right uh, general yamashita uh was uh, a, a japanese general in world war ii he took the command about 10 days before the the end i think it was the end of the war or the fall of his yeah, no no before the invasion of the American invasion. Uh, philippines yeah. 
And uh, what the standard actually says is a commander can be held accountable for crimes committed by his troops, even if he did not order them, did not know anything about them, and did not have the the means to stop them. Now, if we take that standard into consideration, if we're going to start stripping people of VC medals and all sorts of things. No, 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 talk about it. You can't strip him of the VC, no matter what he did. You could commit... He could commit many murders. He could become a serial killer in the streets of Perth and they can't take the VC away. Okay. That was by George, King George. <coughs> mm. Okay. But, but where, where does where does Angus Campbell fit into all of this? Um, disgustingly. Um, I watched the, the exchange between him and um, uh, Senator Roberts, Malcolm Roberts, and one of his excuses, Robert said, why don't you hand back your medal? And he said, well, I can't because there's no one to assess whether or not I deserve it except me. Well, look in the mirror, stupid. Um, I mean, you can't hold on to a medal when you were a thousand kilometers away. And I sent you a, a video clip run by someone called the Masorian Digger. And it's brilliant in assessing Campbell and his failures. And yet he's out there with the infantry combat badge, never been in combat. The distinguished service cross, never distinguished, sesmo, and he should not deserve it at all. He should never have got in the first place. But Sorian Digger did at the end was he listed all the command positions. And it said, get the DSC, you have to do something above and beyond the normal. And yet the last six commanders in Afghanistan all did things above and beyond their predecessor. Yeah, right. <laughs> <coughs> we, we, I mean, it's, it's just cornflake packets. We call them tin medals. Unfortunately, okay. I've, got a couple of, I've got a couple of tin medals, things that I, I got and I didn't even know why I got them. Um, I mean, I, I know I've seen the citations and so on, but they're just general medals like uh, the Australian Service Medal just means you serve somewhere overseas that was in a warlike area. Okay. And um, so you can get these sort of what what I call tin medals and you can get other ones. You can get the long service medal, which I've also got. Um, so they don't really count for very much. <clears throat> the ones that count are the VC. Let me tell you a funny story, actually. Many years ago, back in the 1970s, um, I escorted a young lady <coughs> to the Commonwealth Debutants Ball, but on orders. I didn't want to do it, but anyway. So I was going her along there, and she told me her father was a farmer in Western Australia. And uh, so I turned up at the ballroom with the daughter in tow, and I'm dressed in my finery, and I've got my two little medals at the time for Vietnam. It was the only two I had. And I noticed he was at the other end of the room in, in a crumpled suit that had obviously been under the bed mattress to press it, and he was only wearing one, one medal. <laughs> when I got there, it was Victoria Cross. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Oh, you want to see the biggest put down you've ever had? I went from being preening to a mouse. Yeah, because he had the Victorian cross. That's all he had. Yeah, that's all he had, but that's the one that matters. Correct. <laughs> now, now uh, Adam and I, obviously, uh, as we've said, we're, we're not big on military, so that's why we, we get you in to, to set it all straight for us. Another issue that we've stayed well away from is this Ukraine-Russia war uh, because from my perspective, I've, I've never been to either country 
I don't know the politics and I, I, I don't really want to form a viewpoint on it because I just don't have the knowledge to do so. But it's dragging on now. Uh, this 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 war just keeps on going, and there's there's twists and turns all the way through. Um, just from a military aspect, what are the lessons that we've learned from this Ukrainian-Russian com- conflict? Oh, so, so what are the what are, what does the Australian army learn? Well, the answer is probably absolutely nothing. Um, no, the the first of the more what you might call the modern wars was actually fought between Nagorno. It was fought in a province called Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And they're they're not exactly world leaders, but um, in in you know, military technology or anything else. Now Azerbaijan had lost every previous war to Armenia. In this case here, they absolutely destroyed 100% of the um, Armenian armoured force. They killed over 5,000 troops and they took one-third of the territory. That's like Australia losing Western Australia. Yeah. And they recaptured all of that and captured all of that. How did they do it? They were the first people to introduce drones in mass and they used them to destroy enemy tanks. So they took out the whole of the enemy armored forces. They took out the frontline troops. We learned nothing from that. And that was fought in 2020. We're still not planning armed drones to this day. We know that the enemy fears the cold steel of our bayonets. It's just you <laughs> got to get up close and personal. That was the first of the wars we should have learned from. Then along comes the war in, um, uh, where do you call it, uh, Ethiopia which was fighting. Ethiopians have been losing piece by piece and they'd lost three provinces over the previous about six years and they just didn't have the strength to get them back. They recaptured them all in three months using drones to just take out every enemy position. So you see this is actually happening. Yemen was the same where the Saudi Arabians started losing all their armor to drones. We learned nothing. And now along comes uh, the Ukrainian-Russian uh, war and what do you find? Drones are everywhere. They're being used by both sides, but they're being most effectively used by the, um, by the uh, what do you call them, the Ukrainians. So we have, we have three artillery regiments that are armed with drones. I bet you didn't know that. Three of them. The 9th Artillery Regiment, the 20th Artillery Regiment, and I've forgotten the name of the third one. And there's a video, which I can send you, where a guy is going down with a model aeroplane type thing and he goes launching and throws it off into the sky. I last did that in 1983 with a model plane down at the local model plane ground where they used to fly these radio-controlled planes. And that's the extent we've got to. And it looks like a paper aeroplane he's flying there. And um, we use them for reconnaissance. Um, but we don't have any means of killing them. We don't want to hurt people. We don't. We don't have anything that can hurt people. <clears throat> We've just about disarmed our patrol boats because they became too heavy and top heavy. So we took away the um, the weapon they had, the forty millimeter, and replaced it with a twenty-five millimeter, which means it's now going to be a fair fight with any Chinese fishing boat. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they're armed with: fishing boats armed with twenty-five millimeter weapons great well well back to drones it was the, a drone that hit the russian kremlin right yes and that was probably a black flag operation i don't know if the ukrainians 
had the ability to get that far. Certainly they couldn't fly it that far, so they had to infiltrate people that far, carrying a drone with them. Um, and, you know, I find it quite unusual. I know the American uh, White House is now guarded on the roof with various anti anti-aircraft weapons, but I was surprised to find, and by the way, I worked in Russia for quite some time, um, I was quite surprised to find out that they had now put, uh, you know, anti-aircraft weapons on the roof. Now, that showed a lot of prescience on the Russian side. I think it was very much probably a black flag operation where they've gone in and shot themselves up and then said, look, what happened here? By the way, I don't know if you know that the the, Rus the Germans in World War II used the excuse that the Poles had attacked a radio station just across the border and shot, shot the radio operators. And then there were six bodies found wearing Polish uniforms. And these were actually old prisoners that had been put into Polish uniforms and then executed so they could now have an excuse to start the war. Yeah. I mean, I think that was just a black flag operation to distract people. Is black flag, <laughs> yeah. is black flag another term for false flag? Yes, 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 okay. same thing. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. You're right, it's false flag. Black flag is where you give no quarter. If you raise the black flag, you're taking no prisoners. Oh, okay. 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 So, um, so what? What apart from drones? Is there any other weapon systems that that are working in in this conflict that that we should be going? Hey, maybe we should be looking at these. HIMARS are looking are working brilliantly now. The Singaporeans have had HIMARS since they first spotted them in nine, in two thousand and nine. We just ordered ours last year. <coughs> and we'll probably get them about, um, we get the first, we've ordered nine of them. Great. Um, so they, they use what's called directed artillery, meaning that when you fire the round, if you remember World War One, where we fired six million rounds on the Somme, and then we charged, and they killed 20,000 people on the first day. How well, how well did the six million rounds do? But now what happens is the HIMARS fires, it has a little computer and a camera on there with a laser and it detects what you want to hit. And then it doesn't matter if it moves or what it does, that's it. It doesn't matter what it does, it will track it and that's why you get one round, one hit. And there are lots and lots of um, examples of Russian tanks trying to dodge these things and the artillery shell has got guided tail fins and it just comes in and hits it anyway. So they're absolutely brilliant from the point of taking out, in, instead of firing a million rounds, fire one, take out the tank, fire another, take out another tank. And I watched one skit there where um, they fired nine rounds and took out nine Russian tanks. Wow. So, so that's like a smart weapon. It's just basically a smart weapon then. So it's... it's yeah, it is. It, it, yeah. Okay. Sounds now, like a lot of... Um, sorry, it sounds a bit like uh, Tony Stark and Iron Man technology to me. <laughs> Never watched it. No, I never watched it. I didn't realise it was a documentary, otherwise I'd have watched it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's almost like a documentary, actually, with when you're talking about these smart weapons now. Anyways, yeah. sorry, Stephen, well, keep going. Is there any examples of things that are not working? Where? In, in, in Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. Um, no, the Ukrainians actually are fighting. Uh, I pointed out right at the beginning, right after the initial invasion, they're fighting what's called asymmetric warfare. And asymmetric warfare is where you don't do what's expected of you and you don't fight like the enemy. So if they had, say, raised divisions and stood in front of the Russian divisions, they would have been overrun. 
just by sheer numbers. So what they did was they've actually been attacking from the flanks, from the rear, from everywhere else. They, they let the, uh, I mean, they fought for certain places because uh, urban warfare is absolutely deadly. So they, they fought for every town and then retreated from it um, and taken, enormous, taken a lot of Russian casualties with them. And they've used their artillery very effectively. Now they're starting to counterattack. One of the things I pointed out, I was asked by someone, um, how's this war going to end? And I said, well, if it goes on too long, the Ukrainians will run out of men. They'll run out of people um, because they don't have the population. They don't have the size of army. What's, what is exposed on the Russian side is that the Russians themselves are a very tough people. But it doesn't help if you've got bad, bad generals like we've got. It doesn't help if somebody's robbed you of all the spare parts so you, you don't have you know, weapons and uh, vehicles that actually work properly. If your logistic system breaks down so that when you're on the front line, you've got to go and find a Kmart store or a Woolworths or somewhere to buy some food, there's no one supplying you. So if you have all those things there, you're basically bogged down. And, and that's what's happened to the Russians. They're bogged down. Whether or not they can be taken out, because now they're digging lots of defensive World War One type trenches, which are going to be expensive to take, and it may not be worth the Ukrainians' effort to take them. Uh, I'll bet, bet you hear something you didn't know. In World War Two, the Ukrainians actually fought on the German side. You probably knew that. They were so pissed off with the Russians after the Holodomor, where they starved about anything up to three million to death. So they actually joined the Germans. But when the Russians came back and reconquered Ukraine, the Ukrainians fought on for 10 years and were still fighting in 1954. Oh, wow. So they don't exactly have a great love for the Russians. By the way, they eventually lost because um, the Russians captured a guy who, in exchange for his life, uh, told them where the, all the enemy commanders were. And they went around and rounded them up and shot them. Then they shot the traitor had told them about it, as we as you would do. So, uh, but they fought for 10 years. And then we had peace. We'd created a desert and we called it peace. By the way, you, that was said by Scipio Africanus. Do you, do you see there being a breaking point in this conflict where it could all go one way or the other, or is this just something that's going to drag on for quite some time? Um, the Ukrainians aren't going to give up. Um, providing they're supplied by the West, and I've got a number of um, people I know who actually support the Russians and say, you know, the, the Ukrainians are fascists, they're all of that sort of thing, they're really horrible people and um, they deserve everything they get and they should just have given up Donbass because it's basically Russian-speaking, et cetera, et cetera. No, they shouldn't have given up Donbass. And, <clears throat> and no, they will fight on. Um, and they're not doing it because the Americans are telling them to. There's a big thing they're saying. All the neocons are saying to them, <coughs> don't accept any peace. So they're not going to give in. Whether or not they just settle into a trench warfare thing, as things almost are. I mean, the Battle of Bakhmut took nearly six months. And now basically they've captured most of it back again. <coughs> but um, the other one is Putin's very vulnerable at the moment. And you're now watching the possibility of a revolution taking place within Russia against Putin. The oligarchs aren't happy. 
The generals aren't happy. He sacked his top two generals. Several more generals have been killed. So the army's not happy. Um, and Putin's becoming very isolated. So maybe one day you'll open up your computer and say, Putin assassinated, which is the normal way that Russians change regimes. <laughs> it's only been in recent years we've actually uh, started to let them die natural causes. Wow. <laughs> I'm that learning. I'm learning much up. more about it all because I'm I'm outside of this news cycle loop, and I just can't. I don't know much about it. So all the stories that you're telling me, and you know, it's it's just interesting for me to learn it. So, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who might be watching this that probably don't know as much about it, obviously as yourself. So these stories that they're hearing is, um, you know, some of it's <laughs> shocking, some of it's like, oh well, that's to be expected. But um, let's face it, war is not a pleasant game at all. And, um, you know, is there, you know, will, what would there need, what, what's needed for a resolution, do you think? Probably the assassination of Putin. He's not going to give up. He can't. No. Um, so, in fact, you, you need a regime. You're not going to get a regime change in Ukraine. Not at the moment. Um, something might happen later on that's unexpected. Zelensky might get killed or something, whatever. But... <clears throat> The possibility, the, the biggest possibility is that the Russian army rebels against what they're being asked to do. Or there's a revolution in the Kremlin. And that would then change the dynamics of the war. And then there would be negotiations. And basically, uh, Ukraine would get everything back it's, it, it had before. And we'd all just say, well, that was a bad exercise. Pity about the 300,000 dead and wounded. <coughs> By the way, that's slightly bigger than our army, if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> and, and that's happened in 400, 480 days. And in your estimation, what's the likelihood of this escalating in, in you know, maybe involving NATO or America more so no. than they're already involved? No, no, no. There's no way that NATO can actually afford to get involved. If they got involved, then you would trigger the excuse for Putin to see if his nuclear forces would carry out their orders and fire tacti tactical nuclear weapons. And then you've got another much, much bigger problem. And by the way, you came back to, there was two things actually, you didn't mention one of them. One was the Nord Stream pipeline, yeah. which was blown up. <coughs> Who did it? And your answer is? Uh, the Ukrainians, no. <laughs> Russians, no, the Americans, no. the Americans, the Americans certainly authorized it. It was probably done by the British, and it was actually to keep Germany in the American field because the Ameri the, the Germans were sort of saying, "Oh, look, we need all this uh, gas. Keep our industries going. Keep people warm in the winter here." Um, we, we're not going to support the war anymore. So, boom, there goes the pipeline. Who's going to supply them with the gas? Has America. to come out of the North Sea or from, or from America. So America ramped up its gas production and sent a lot of gas across there to keep Germany on their side, if you like. Um, that pipeline has never been repaired yet. But the, the evidence was, I was, I was quite surprised actually when it happened. Then you find out there's two explosions and it was clearly sabotage. And there is, in fact, an intercepted call where um, Truss said it's done. She didn't explain what was done, but she just said it was done, and that was about 20 minutes after the uh, pipeline was blown. Now, come back to the other one, and that's the dam. 
Yes. This is this is yeah. far more interesting. And I I knew about it. I knew the dam had collapsed, but I I didn't know whether or not it had been blown up. And the Russians were were chat. <coughs> the Russians were um, there it is. The Russians were charging that the Ukrainians did it, and the Ukrainians are saying, "No, we didn't do it. Why would we do it?" Um, so who's the who's the who's the culprit here? Or did it just collapse by natural causes? <coughs> and the answer is, well, I, I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> America. <laughs> no, it wasn't America. Um, it was probably the Russians. By I mean the the. the there's an ex example there taken just a couple of months ago where the sluice gates at the other side on the, by the way, this, this, this dam is divided in two. The north side where you're looking there, the top of the picture is actually run by the Ukrainians and the south side is run by the Russians. And it's the south side that's collapsed right, be right beside that power station. It was actually, um, and you can see there's some road damage there. It is possible that the dam was already collapsing, as you can see from the damage there. Now, what, what, what I saw in one site there was that it said the Russians actually wanted to demonstrate that they could actually do this, which would be disastrous for the hydroelectric electricity that they produce in, uh, in um, Ukraine. So they wanted to blow a small hole in it. And so they set off a charge, and the bloody whole thing collapsed. Oops. 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 There's a couple of problems with that. Apart from flooding enormous areas downstream, a lot of which is in Russian territory or Belarus, and um, upstream is where they take in the uh, water for the cooling plant for the largest, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, nuclear power station. You stop cooling that and you have another Chernobyl. Meltdown, yeah. And the water levels are dropping and I, I don't know how far they've got to go down, but it'd probably be at least five or 15 meters, somewhere in that range. But that would happen if you don't do something, or you might get some big pumps to actually replace that. So you're facing another possible Chernobyl or Fukushima where you can't cool the, the nuclear plant. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. And the well, nuclear plant in the Russian side? Sorry? So the nuclear plant's Russian? No, no, it's in Ukraine. So the Ukraine, so, okay, so the Ukraine, so, okay. All right, no worries, I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to follow. Yeah, this. no, no, well, it, it was, in fact, attacked by the Russians, and everybody was up in arms saying, are you out of your minds attacking a, you know, what are you trying to do? Are you Are going to capture it, and what are you going to do with it? So, in fact, uh, they basically parked themselves on the south side of it, and the Ukrainians still on the north side and were still running it. And that's where a lot of the electricity they've got is still coming from. Now, someone's gone and blown this dam, and um, the water level is dropping, as it would. And I'm not sure what level it's got to go down to before you go, oops, we now have another unintended consequence, another China syndrome. I love the law of unintended consequences. Whatever <laughs> <laughs> can go wrong, will go wrong. <laughs> oh, no, it goes well beyond that. <laughs> well, speaking of nuclear, I know you love speaking about well-planned, and thought out decisions that the Australian military take. Uh, this AUKUS deal with uh, Australia looking to purchase and potentially later building nuclear submarines, do you think that was a strategic or, uh, or a political decision? Absolutely political. 
they, they'd come, I mean, they finally realized that they couldn't cover up the cane toad anymore, the barracuda, the French barracuda cane toad, um, which was so useless. I mean, you don't take a nuclear submarine and redesign it to carry diesel fuel and chew around for a maximum range of less than 6,000 kilometers when your last filling point is Exmouth. You've got to get up to the South China Sea. Pointless, beyond belief. Um, yeah, that's one of my articles, actually. Yeah, our unstoppable cane um, submarine. Well, the thing was, I had, a, I had a $10 bet that these would never be built. And the guy I bet with um, has not paid up. So uh -huh. I might double up with them that uh, they won't build these either well, in Australia no. or elsewhere. You see, it comes down to there's a couple of things here. <clears throat> Let's go back in history again. History is a great teacher. In 1898, Winston Churchill and a bunch of Brits charged the Sudanese um, at Omdurman in a cavalry charge. Saws out there slashing, cutting, and that's how the, the, the initial movie, Young Winston, ends when he jumps into this trench with his boss and his sword and he's slashing around there. <coughs> well, obviously he survived that. That was 1898. The British actually retained about six or seven horse divisions just waiting for the big breakthrough in France, which never came. And it wasn't until 1916 when they had a crisis in manpower that they actually dismounted from their horses and sent these guys off to be infantry. And after the war, of course, they re-raised the horse guards. Um, but now we were into tanks. So then if you look at the tanks that had been introduced at Cambrai in 1917 and were quite powerful weapons by the end of 1918. The British didn't learn anything from this, despite having people like Little Hart and Fuller. But the people who were reading the doctrines put out by Little Hart and Fuller were people like Manstein and Guderian. They thought, this is a good idea, and formed the Panzer Corps, which, of course, were brilliantly successful. So that was another 20 years later. And so when we go on, you have these changes. And what comes out in the Strategic Defence Report by Houston, Smith had very little to do with it, <coughs> just as well. Uh, Houston actually said there that the, one of the problems there that defence has is as one platform, whatever it is, being a tank, we used to have the Centurion, then it became the Leopard, then it became the Abrams. As we get rid of one, we simply replace it with the latest model. You trade your car in for the latest model. By the way, I, I did that just before I came to Vung Tau. Bad mistake. This thing's got 24 wraps in it, and you need a university degree to actually be able to drive the rotten thing. Yeah. <laughs> As I pointed out to my grandson, who programmed it all for me, there are 23 of these apps I don't know how to use. All I know is how to start it. Yeah. <laughs> I get back, I'll have to sit down and do a bloody course to find out how to drive my car. No, no, just go you know, buy a 2013 model. Sorry? Just go back and buy it, trade it in and go back and buy a 2013 model. So you have the best of everything without it being connectable. That's what I do now. I did have. That's what we traded in. Bad news. Anyway, the point there is that, uh, as Houston pointed out, we've got this bad habit of simply replacing one with like, and we go for bigger and better. So our um, anti-submarine hunter class um, ships were there to hunt submarines, the ASW. Then, oh, no, 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 we, we can't do that anymore because we can't afford the other ones. We're going to buy eight of them. 
And so we turned them into, um, what are they called now? Um, but anyway, they added weight and they added missiles. Oh, they, they wanted them for air warfare, among other things. So they added, they added new missiles and they added weight until they were no longer a frigate. They're now the weight of a destroyer, but we didn't mm. upgrade the power pack. So now they can't go as fast and they sit lower <laughs> in the water. <coughs> um, now, one of the solutions, of course, is take some of the weapons off. Stop making it so top heavy. I mean, this is this is this is just how we do it, and we've now been planning the hunter class for eight years. And just this year, we cut the first steel for the hull, or the first one. Eight years in planning. The Chinese in that time have built nearly a hundred and fifty ships, and we are still thinking about it. I mean, Alistair, must, can you tell the story? Can you tell the story where you went to a presentation somewhere, and they were talking oh. about? They were talking about the Barracuda and something else. And, yeah, no, uh, it's great. I, went, I, went along, I went along to a presentation by the Royal United Services Institute, which um, I was very interested in, actually. And um, the speaker was actually from British Aerospace, who are, by, who are building the Hunters. And uh, so at the end of it, I stuck my little finger up, and there was a lot of ex-Navy guys there who'd been going, ooh, ah, oh, and wetting themselves <laughs> with excitement. And so I stuck my finger up and I said, can these submarine hunters find the Barracuda and sink it? And I'll tell you, the temperature of the room went from 30 degrees to about 2 degrees, but it went below freezing shortly afterwards. And the guy looked at me and he said, well, um, actually, I don't know. And I said, well, aren't we wasting money on the hunters if you can't find submarines or wasting the money on the submarines if they can be detected? Yeah. Which is it? And um, I can see them actually starting to gather the wood and the stake. And they're going to burn me at the stake. <laughs> burn at the stake. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't been invited back to too many of those talks. But anyway, what happened was, of course, that um, we, uh, we cancelled the Barracuda and made a political statement that we're now going to get a nuclear-powered submarine. Um, now, here's a quick question for you. We were going to... After, after much machinations, we were going to buy the Barracuda. We decided not to. We decided to turn it into a conventional submarine using lead-acid batteries as per 1917. And we were also going to use um, fossil fuels and, and, and diesel to drive it around. It would still have conventional weapons. Now, when we decided, we're, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to get a nuclear submarine. Why didn't we go back and say... And this would have saved us $4 billion in penalties. Why don't we go back and say, we'll have the Barracuda now. We'd like your nuclear version. The nuclear version of the Barracuda, right? Yeah, which is what we bought in the first place and then said we want to change it. Now, th this requires <laughs> a degree of asylum-level incompetence that um, is beyond my comprehension. And by the way, I used to work in this system and I tortured people unmercifully. I've got to be um, honest with you. I don't want. I'm kind of like want to withdraw my taxpayers' funds. I don't want oh, my taxes. I don't want my taxes way, to go to this. Yeah, but hang on, hang on. When he was in the United States and California, standing uh, beside <laughs> a Virginia-class submarine with Rishi Sunak and um, God, I've forgotten the Miles and I've forgotten the American guy and the Secretary for Defense announcing that this was all going to happen. Um, Albert, Albanese then actually said 
um, we're going to give $3.4 billion to Rishi to finish the design, the design of the astute class submarine. Now, <laughs> this is lunatic level. Think about it. We haven't decided which one we're going to buy. We've said we'll either buy the British <coughs> or the American or a combination of both. But the astute has not even finished its design. So we're going to give you $3.4 billion to finish the design of taxpayers' money in Australia, and then we might not buy it because we might go with the, the, the uh, Virginia, which we'll get much sooner. Uh, it, so, so for this August deal to build these submarines, it's going to cost anywhere between $268 to $368 billion. How many, how many drones could we buy for that much money? Oh, um, <laughs> too many. <laughs> too many. We would have made an army. If you put them all in Western Australia, you know, Australia would sort of tend to sink towards the West. That's, yeah. No, so, we, we give, I mean, the drones actually cost about a million each. Oh, really? And, and with support services, which you need for the initial ones, probably about three million. Now, <clears throat> we need missiles. We need hypersonic missiles. Now, Angus uh, Hurston actually did mention we need missiles. We have no missiles at the moment. <laughs> Our longest-range missile is an anti-aircraft missile that belongs to 16th uh, Anti-Aircraft Regiment, and it has a range of five kilometers and a height of 5,000 feet. So if we can't persuade the Chinese to come within that range, you're stuffed. <laughs> and if you happen to be on the ground, stay within that range. So could you imagine what, could you imagine what, you know, let's say war-driven countries or people who are planning war or at the hostile takeover another country what they would have in their armory like imagine what if we've got basically nothing we've got matchsticks what would china have oh they've got everything they need except amphibious craft and they've started building some of those but there's another reason why they're building those let me go back a step to what what you were just saying there about planning war alfred jordan it's in that article i wrote was hanged at the end of the war because he planned military operations against the Netherlands, France, um, you know, Norway, all of Greece, all of these places. That was his job. He was the chief of planning. Mm. And they hanged him for being a war criminal for planning foreign wars. So uh, that's one thing. But here's the other thing. When Germany had been defeated in World War One and started looking at things like Blitzkrieg and well, actually developed Britain, started looking at tanks and other things. A lot of the conservative German officers didn't want any of these things. They wanted just a bigger infantry army like they'd always had and they'd go back and do what they've always done. <coughs> Manstein and Guderian particularly actually managed to form this initial armoured corps, started off as a division, then it became an armoured corps, and then demonstrated what it could do. And then that became the plan, not for the West, that, and in fact, um, as you know, the Germans actually stopped short of Dunkirk. They should have kept going. But the whole thing that had broken through was the Manstein-Guderian plan that had been sold to Hitler above and beyond all the people in the army headquarters. Basically, these two, these two relatively junior generals <coughs> had bypassed the whole of Canberra and gone straight to the, uh, the prime minister and said, we have a plan that will actually break the deadlock. And it worked. 
The problem was that that whole plan had been developed between 1933 and 1941, or 19, 1940, when they actually implemented the defeat of the French. They then decided to use the same plan to defeat the Russians. So the eight years of planning, using a particular type of blitzkrieg warfare, they thought was now the solution to everything. Mm. And it turned out Russia's a big country yeah. with lots of resources. And by the time they'd wiped out more than 100 Russian divisions, their intelligence people were saying there's 167 left. And they said that's more than the total number they ever started off with. So, so they were just drawing soldiers from everywhere. And, of course, Richard Sorge was the one who said, Japan's not going to attack you. So they brought all the uh, divisions from uh, from Siberia across to fight in the western side too. And they just keep feeding people in. I mean, they lost six million dead. Um, that's dead. So they yeah. just kept feeding people into the mincemeat machine. But the point, the yeah. point there was they had one plan, which they planned on meticulously, which worked. You can't use the same plan for the next twice. war. No, that's right. You can't use it twice. But the good thing is, the good thing is, we don't have any plans, so we're no. quite flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. I think our plan is stick your head in the sand. No, actually, if you go back to one of the reports, I think it was Hugh White actually wrote it. Um, you might correct me as one of the one of the gurus. He was the guy who said there'll be no war involving Australia in the next fifteen years. That was just before we sent a battalion off to Somalia. It was just before various other things, Rwanda happened and these sort of things. So we still had deployments, but not the sort of scale. And he was the one that said, we've got to actually stop fighting wars in other people's countries and destroying them. We need to fight the next war in Australia and destroy our country instead. So we went into Fortress Australia. We'll wait until they get here and then we'll defeat them. That's why we built the base in Darwin. Well, you just you have, think, I mean, I, I sorry. Do you think we just rely on America and we just think that they're going to come and save us? Oh, we did. We we have very much so relied on America, and in return, of course, we supplied um, five hundred and six dead and fifty five thousand soldiers to Vietnam. <clears throat> we supplied soldiers for Iraq, not so much Iraq. We supplied Navy, <coughs> and we supplied soldiers into Afghanistan as part of the international force. So yes, um, we have utterly relied on America. Now, President Key, you remember who he was, he was the last president of, uh, President Two rather, he uh, was the last president of South Vietnam. And when he finally did a run up to Taiwan just before Vietnam fell, he said, America is a very, very bad enemy, but they're a worse friend. Hmm meaning they're very unreliable. Look at the places they've pulled out of. They've pulled out of Afghanistan just like that. Yeah. And look at the, the chaos that actually followed. That was a Have you heard much of Afghanistan lately about the Friday executions, beheadings, and the stoning of women? No, no. that can't be happening then. Yeah, well, I, yeah. You, know, um, you know, Donald Trump speaks about that a lot. So, um, you know, how it was a disaster and, you know... You, so, I mean, we hear lots of stories about that. Alistair, I'm going to ask you a, a dumb question. I think I've already asked a couple of dumb questions tonight, but I'm going to ask another yeah. one. We're talking about these nuclear submarines. Now, if you destroy yeah. a nuclear submarine, would that, would that be like setting off a nuclear 
reaction no. or they, no. they protected somehow? No. There's two nuclear submarines went to the bottom. One of them was the Thresher. And it sank in about um, yeah, five and a half thousand meters of water, which is 15,000 feet. The nuclear reactor is still there. The weapons are still on board and they're gradually rusting away. <clears throat> um, there was another one I've forgotten. That was not the, that was the second one. There's a very good book called um, uh, the name of it now too. Um, but uh, oh, Blind Man's Bluff. It actually explains about these two nuclear submarines that went to the bottom. <clears throat> There's no no additional danger if you have a look at the size of the ocean. And even if these things went off at the bottom of the ocean, would have absolutely no effect. Yeah, okay. Where's all the radiation from Fukushima that was supposed to, according to the Tasmanian physiotherapist, was supposed to kill 100,000 people within three months? There are people now living back in Fukushima. There are people yeah. living around Chernobyl now, illegally, by the way. Illegal. But you can now take a bus tour to Chernobyl. I recommend right. you do it. <clears throat> well, yeah. Um, we've we've spoken to other experts and people about that as well. That 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 whole the the you know radiation levels and some of the uh, the stories that were spread about that. That was what there's a famous picture of Fukushima with all the red flows, and it's actually to do with the tides, not to actually yeah. do with the radiation that's coming out. But it was falsely labelled as as uh, radiation leaking from the plant. The explosions were supposed to be nuclear explosions. In fact, they were because the heating hydrogen meltdown had actually caused water to divide into oxygen and hydrogen. All hydrogen. it needed was a spark, and you got the, blew the roof off. Very impressive. Yeah. Hydrogen so explosions. Yeah. Yeah, it was a hydrogen explosion. Now, if you take into account, too, how many people are living in uh, Nagasaki now in Hiroshima? Go and look at the uh, – actually, the, my, fa my favorite picture is um, – it actually says, who won the war? And it has a picture of Chicago being an absolute derelict, run-down city, and it has a picture of uh, Hiroshima, which is a vibrant, great city. Wow, um, yeah. <laughs> and I've, been, I've been to Hiroshima, and I've been to the War Museum there, um, and I've seen the granite shadow on the steps where a guy was sitting on the steps and got vaporized, and all he left was his shadow. Wow. Very impressive. Make you famous if you knew who he was. Wow, Al Alistair, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. We love having you on the show and you've taken us through a lot of issues and we could probably ask you a, a billion more questions. Uh, but uh, I just have one more in my preparation for tonight's episode. This is a, something that you spoke about on another podcast or interview and it's not a military question, but you said, you said somewhere that, that the, uh, the Persian Gulf almost needs another oil spill because you argue that oil spills... A, a good thing in, a, in in some way. Can Absolutely. You just, can Absolutely. You <laughs> wow. Oh, you mean you are you two being contrarian? So <laughs> tell me, do you think oil spills are bad? <clears throat> well, we're Come told on, that they're yeah. bad. We're told by everyone that they're bad. I'm an '80s kid. <laughs> I've I've seen the pictures of the the ducks all covered in the oil and and all the creatures covered in oil and how it's damaging them from TV. Yeah. So it's enlighten me then. Okay. Um, the world's biggest oil spill was actually uh, in Kuwait when um, the uh, re retreating Iraqis blew up 678 oil wells and let the water flow into the sea. And I've got a picture of it where it's actually the oil was three feet deep. 
blowing down the coast, completely contaminating the coast. Now, the Persian Gulf is a great place to spill oil. If you're picking the place in the world where you'd really like to spill oil, it would be the Persian Gulf. The reason being that all this oil was going down there, the, the, the temperature in the Persian Gulf is about 30 degrees. <clears throat> that was like getting into a sauna. You don't jump into the sea to cool down. And um, so it very quickly evaporated all the kerosenes, the light oils. They all evaporated off. And then you end up with Adam Loves, and that's um, this sludge, this sticky, horrible black tar that covers birds and everything else. And, and that's the one the environmentalists love. It takes about 30 days before UV and the, the soup called the sea with all the chemicals in it and everything else starts making other compounds of that. And they form things called Coke balls. And the Coke balls will be about the size of a tennis ball or a large grapefruit. They never get any bigger than that. And you can, I, I picked one up and I rubbed it in my hands and my hands were still clean at the end. It doesn't stick to you. Just wow. clean so they eventually saturate and sink to the bottom, okay? And, in fact, a dive team went down about two years later and found what they said was a tarmac road along the whole bottom down the coast, <clears throat> except there was a problem from their point of view. They wanted to look at this ecological devastation. Now, here's a technical question for you. What, a what is fertilizer made up of? Oh, um, what's it the nitrogen. What, what, what are the elements? What are the three elements oh. that make up fertilizer? Yeah, it's 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 three it's three elements that that uh, the plants need. It's it's I think it's nitrogen, Carbon, nitrogen. hydrogen, and nitrogen. Okay. <clears throat> Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen. So that all sank to the bottom. Oh my and god! The, the Persian the Persian Gulf is almost a nonity. It has very very few fish in it. There's very few, it's got a few little coral leaves which were supposed to be wiped out. They weren't, they bloomed. Um, and it's got a few turtles and things like that, but not much because the only rivers that flow into it are the Tigris and Euphrates, and they bring down very little silt and very little nutrients. So it's very much nutrient-free. Now what you had was 678 million gallons of fertilizer pumped into the bottom of the sea there, and it had an absolute bloom of uh, seagrass wow. and there was a local fish there that suddenly discovered that there was a banquet on and so they were eating the seagrass and they actually built i believe about and in fact a, a guy i know i'm not a friend with them but a guy i know was hired actually to run this fl fishing fleet of about 20 vessels and they go out and they would just pack these vessels full of hammer which is like barramundi and so when you went to Qatar, Dubai, Alain, any of these places, um, Kuwait, and you went to the local hotel and said, well, what's the fish of the day? Hamur. Oh, God, not again, <laughs> because there's so much of it. Much and of I'm, it. Sure it, I'm sure it raised the average intelligence because it's high in protein, which is another deficiency of um, people who live in, in that sort of region. So here we are, 1991, they spilled all of that. By 1993... Carl Sagan, who was still alive then, was shocked to find out that his prediction of nuclear winter <clears throat> and ecological de devastation lasting 100 years, he was a great astronomer but not a great ecologist, um, environmentalist, uh, was shocked to find out that, uh, in fact, there was no harm found. And in, it was terrific. I'll send, you the, I'll send you the link to one of my yeah. articles. I'll send it to Stephen because I don't have your uh, address. Yes. Um, and I'll send you the first one if you want. It's seven parts. 
And I then looked at other ones such as XTOP1, which was another one that flowed into the Gulf for two years and they couldn't find any oil. It was being eaten by microbes within days of it being spilled out of this well at the rate of about 30,000 30, gallons a day. And along came, of course, uh, Exxon Valdez. Bad news. It only spilled about um, 80,000 barrels, I think it was, but it happened in cold, clear water in Alaska. And you can still find tar balls there 30 years later. Oh, the because the ball, because the, everything, because the kerosene and stuff evaporates of it still, and then it still forms a tar ball, but it's a slower process. Yeah, it doesn't form the cork balls. And so uh, the woman there, there's a, there's a picture I've got out of a woman with a jar, and she's got some tar in it pointing at this. This is still here. Now, one of the big disasters that occurred in Alaska was they actually tried to disperse it. They did the same, actually, in, um, in the Gulf. They sprayed all these uh, dispersal agents, basically soapy water, onto them. Bad news. It killed all the micros that were eating this stuff. Uh. It killed all the fish. It destroyed all the life around. And then they blamed it all on the oil. I mean, I've got an article being published in uh, Quadrant Magazine on uh, July, and it's called Moronicity, How the Stupid Are Taking Over the World. Hey, it doesn't, a, surpri it doesn't surprise me because... The same thing with the environmentalists, with the windmills and the solar panels. It all just seems to be worse for the environment once you scratch the surface. Absolutely. And, what and now you're talking about, so as I said, 80s kid, David Attenborough being poisoned by that guy. I know, I know, see the shake of the head. And what <laughs> happens is, so I'm thinking like oil's bad. Now, I've got a question for you, Alistair. What about the oil sludge that you see on the beaches and things like that from those big oil leaks. Does the oil, does the oil disperse back into the sand from the, from yeah, when it's yeah. on the beaches? How long, within 30 days, it will be gone. There are microbes in the sea that will eat it. There's a place called Coal Point off California. Now, I don't know if you've had a look at films like Chinatown where they have, in the middle of Los Angeles, they have a Horsehead that sucks up oil. Coal Point's been leaking for at least 10,000 years. They know this because they found saber-toothed tigers and all sorts of uh, mammoths that have been getting stuck in it and in these tar pits around Los Angeles where they're still sucking out oil. They wanted to put an oil rig out there to actually really sort of empty the stuff because it was spilling 10,000 um, barrels a day. And they couldn't find it. It never ended up on the shore because of the way the currents went. But what actually has happened is, of all things, what's his name, Brosnan, I forgot his first name. Uh, I don't, don't remember actors' names. Um, Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Um, he, actually, he actually objected to it, started all these plus, um, these uh, protests. It was going to spoil his view of the darkness at night. And so they didn't put the oil rig in there, and it's still <laughs> spilling this amount. And they actually asked the Woods Hole Oceanographic Centre, well, where's it all going? This is written up. I actually read the article in Popular Mechanics. They said, well, it just gets eaten by the microbes. And then it sinks to the bottom where it's fertiliser. And, and they couldn't see the problem. And yet we're not exploiting by drilling into this um, oil field. So, I mean, the insanity of people in, in not... Understand that I mean, I am a contrarian, but this is but 
you know, I'm, I also have to deal with stupid people, and I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I, I just, oh, I just it's just all lies. Like I just don't get it, Alistair. It's all lies. Like we're just being fed lies our whole, our whole lives. Pretty much from you know from your point of view, like it's basically everything's just lies. It's just lies after lies, isn't it? Yes. Um, when I, I I actually decided that I'd get myself a degree, so I went back to university in 1973, and I wrote absolutely contrarian. I was doing economics, and two articles I wrote, which I've kept both of them by the way. One is the Giffen effect, which is where um, you know when supply and demand, when uh, the price goes, when uh, you get more money, you buy steak instead of sausages. Yeah. Well, I managed to find the number of things where you get more money. And the cheaper thing actually goes up a lot more. <laughs> ah, That's called the Giffen effect. The so Giffen it runs kind of the supply and demand type thing. But the other one I wrote was kill all the whales. I didn't believe this, but I just thought I'd actually show them the economic answer was to kill all the whales and then harvest the krill. And that way we'd be better off because we get all the food and there would be no whales around to actually eat it all. <laughs> I, I, had to fight. I had to fight to get that marked. Yeah, I, 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 you know, of course. I successfully actually fought getting that upgraded. <clears throat> I, I actually said in an article to someone about this, um, my tutor eventually asked to be replaced. Considering <laughs> 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 that as a huge success. <laughs> well, Alistair, I'm really looking forward to your future article. What's it called again? In the, the, it's going to be in the... In uh, the myth of oil spills. No, no, the one about the morons or something. You oh, the moronicity. 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 Yeah, All right, Alistair, to, I'm going to give you... Modern magazine. There's a, Alistair, if you ever get it, there's a movie that you need. It's called Idiocracy. <laughs> Somebody recommended it to me, but I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you should watch it. I, maybe I recommended it to you in the last in the last video. Oh, probably. But That's right. Honestly, I've I, I got to be honest with you just quickly. I know we're about to go. To go. But I... I my do- I got a twelve-year-old daughter, and we had a bit of a movie night. And I said to her, "You know what? Let's just do this. Let's just watch this and see why I'm sitting at home going insane with the way the world's going." And <laughs> and this movie is pretty much one of those keynote kind of when Hollywood kind of tells the truth in a far-fetched yeah. rubbish way. But it's yeah. probably you need to watch that. It's called Idiocracy, and I'll look out for your one, which is called what was it called again? The myth of uh, the myth of oil spills. Okay, Alistair. Not only are you a wealth of knowledge, you're one of our most entertaining guests. I, I always get a laugh every time we speak to you. So thank you very much for coming on. Uh, okay. Can you list the? Um, I know you're probably not on social media or anything like that, but do you want to list all the publications that you're in? Obviously, Quadrants One, but you're across all yeah, the. No, I can list. I can list them for you. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I'd like to actually just mention in passing there was that uh, I received a, an email from um, Defence Department and from a Lieutenant Colonel, actually, and underneath was, um, I thank the owners of this land for letting me use it, et cetera, et cetera, and the elders and all this. <laughs> so you'll find that my signature block is an interpretation of that. Um, okay. You've seen it. Even yeah, no, you did send it to me. I'll try and I'll try yeah, and send it, it on to Adam. Yeah, send it on to me. Yeah. Is this something that you would want read out loud or? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't put it in a signature block. 
Oh, it's it's it's, it's as long as the one that I got from Defence. Someone says that's the longest signature block I've seen. No, I said it's just the same length I got from one from Defence. <coughs> and everyone in Defence is now putting out this signature block saying, "I'm sorry, I stole your land. I'll give it all back to you as soon as I possibly can." And I know you've got their vote no for voice. In my last command, which is a long time ago, and I had eight Aboriginal soldiers. These were real Aboriginal soldiers. And um, they, uh, I, I, when we're out in the, the bush, I used to say to them, why don't you join the army? And all of them said without exception, I joined to get away from the tribe mm. because uh, I can't get on. If I've got $10, 10 people will turn up saying, give me a dollar each. Yeah. And um, you, you just get trapped into this, uh, this lifestyle. So he said, I joined. Now, Aboriginal, it's funny you say uh, that because uh, one of our the guests that we had on last week was Dr. Gary Johns, and he wrote a book called The Burden of Culture, where he spoke yeah. about that. Yeah, similar similar concepts. There, there are many other things actually I wanted to mention there about the biological nuclear unrestricted warfare. There's a, a book actually written by two Chinese colonels about how China will fight unrestricted warfare. It will abrogate every treaty of civilization and use biological, chemical, every weapon it can possibly find to win. They actually don't understand what winning is because, yeah. they, I mean, there are necessary wars, but these people want to go to war because they can, as Germany did in 1939. They had now built an army and they weren't going to stop until someone stopped them. And, of course, that devastated the world. The Japanese were the same with their militaristic, and now you've got China has developed the same mindset. Russia hasn't actually developed that mindset. The Cold War sort of set them back on their heels a lot, and their their economy <coughs> basically collapsed, which is why Gorbachev said, we've got to open up. We can't keep yeah. going like this. Um, we, we can produce guns or butter, but not both, so we'll, yeah. we need to actually open up. And of course, that ended up causing the collapse of the U of the USSR, which Putin has now rated as the worst disaster in Russian history. And he's been trying with these wars in Georgia and now Ukraine, and against Chechnya, to try and sort of reform uh, the Russian Empire. And of course, he's got um, Belarus has been very much a supporter of Russia, got a very pro-Russian prime minister. But I notice he's the reports here of bread various blogs that he's going to withdraw his troops from the Ukrainian. What he's doing is just basically protecting the northern border of Russia. So, in fact, he's basically said, we're not going to take part and we might turn on you. And now, of course, you've got these rebels uh, who have captured Belgorod and other places there. You've now got a mini revolution going on. It won't extend beyond that <coughs> unless it becomes far more widespread. But I would think the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters of the 100,000 Russians dead might start to question the purpose of what these people are doing. Mm. You know you have a purpose if you're fighting for Ukraine, um, but what's your purpose if, if you're just a professional soldier? That's fine. But 50% of the people being sent to Ukraine are conscripts who never oh. expected to find themselves at war. Yeah. Especially when they're similar people as well, you know, you, Russia kind of grew out of the Ukraine originally, so it's not yes, like it did. yeah, it's not like they're fighting a foreign 
foreign yeah, foe. No, no, no. That's a bit of history very few people know. That Ukraine actually stretched all the way up to Lithuania at one stage. Wow. Stephen, you're a genius. I didn't know that people knew that. <laughs> I know a little I thought, bit. I, of I thought Adam and I were the only ones. <laughs> no, no, not me. I had no idea. I don't know. No, that's Stephen. Stephen's Stephen's the man. <laughs> okay, Alistair, please okay. list, off, list off everywhere that people can find you, and uh, and we'll we'll wrap things up. Okay. Right. Bye, Stephen. All right. Thanks, Alistair. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Adam, and thank you everyone for watching. Uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. <laughs>